Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Conversations with Dr. D. Yvonne Young. Join America's leading relationship expert, top holistic life coach, and best-selling author, Dr. D. Yvonne Young, along with a diverse team of regular commentators, experts, and celebrity guests. Be entertained while being informed on the issues that affect you most. Don't miss it. Dr. D. Yvonne Young, providing you the tools you need to start living a profoundly extraordinary life. Good evening, America. Today is November the 3rd, 2013. You're tuned in to Conversations with Dr. D. Yvonne Young. Tonight, uh, we have something very special for you, and I want to uh, send a couple of special shouts out real quick uh, to Julie Dash in Barbados. Julie, I want you to know that everyone here and on the home team is praying for your mother. I ask that you guys around the world, uh, especially those of you in the Caribbean and the VI and the uh, U.K., Say a special prayer. Julie's mom is dealing with some health complications, so we definitely want her to know that she's loved and supported through this. Well, tonight, uh, I have a program with a very, very special woman. They say the apple never falls far from the tree. However, there's some good stuff that happens when it does. And in this case, there's a lady that I know most of you are familiar with. Her name is Alice Walker. She wrote a book called The Color Purple, but that is by far not her most significant achievement. Her most significant achievement in anyone that has been breathing and reading and uh, in the literary world especially knows about Rebecca Walker. I'm going to tell you a little bit about this fascinating woman that we have on our program. Now, let me connect dots. Some of you looked at what we put on, uh, those of you that are signed on at uh, dyvonneyoung.com, you got an email uh, getting informed about this show. If you have not registered with that website, you might want to make sure that you do that. That way you can find out not only what I'm doing, but what we are doing when it comes to having nights just like this evening. The other thing is those of you that follow us on social media also saw that I wrote something that said, you know what, Uh, if your parents have, uh, if you feel that, you know, the wrecking ball from your parents hits your life, or if you feel guilty for not being the best parent you should be, I want to say something to that. You know, no matter what our origins are, God has a wonderful, wonderful plan in mind for that. Sometimes the very things that we feel that are going to be a curse are the exact same things that are going to be used to bless us, and that is exactly the case tonight. Now, let me give you um, just a, a quick rundown. First, I want you guys, if you are near your computers, to uh, go to RebeccaWalker.com. 
This woman is nothing short of amazing. She has a story that many of us can relate to. Myself having mixed ancestrage is, um, you know, often we have to figure out, okay, what, what do I do with that? You know, what do I do when I am the product of an interfaith or interracial marriage? What do I do, and, and in my case, let's just throw some other things in there, when you are born on one side of the family and adopted and translated to that other side of the family, born from the haves to the have, I mean the have-nots, and then you get put on the side of the haves. Well, if you are struggling with some issues or you're, let me put it another way, making excuses because of those issues, this is certainly a program I want you to tune into. Now, I want to just take a quick moment to talk about this wonderful woman that is my guest this evening. I, I had a chance to um, just review her bio. Julia was telling me, she said, I've got this fantastic guest. I want you to uh, just check her out. So, you know, I did my homework. This lady is a New York Times bestselling author. She has a book that I uh, we're going to discuss this evening called Black, White, and Jewish, and I definitely suggest that you read it. Uh, there's another book called Black Cool that I definitely suggest that you read. Uh, not a book, I mean a, another writing that she's done. She has been everywhere. This woman has uh, just appeared in hundreds of universities, corporate campuses ranging from Harvard to MIT to Seattle U to the Walker Arts Center to Union College to Morehouse to Xavier to Rollins College, and that's just the tip of an iceberg. She's also, maybe if you've ever heard of the blog called The Root, you have seen some of her work. She's been featured there. Um, but, but I think the biggest thing that she has to offer us tonight is that when life hands you the imperable lemons, make sure that, um, and we're also going to talk about her new book, and we're, I'm going to bring that up last in the conversation, but I just want to set the stage for this dialogue I'm going to have with her. When life hands you lemons, don't just make lemonade make lemon pies, lemon parfaits, make a key lime pie with lemon juice in it, sprinkle a little lemon on your fish, and that is exactly what this woman has done. She has had the uh, one of the most unique origins that I've read, and, it, and it, um, it reminds me of myself, but if we add on to this caveat, doing what she had to do in the eyes of an onlooking American, uh, being the daughter of a very famous woman, and then in the midst of that long shadow that mom cast, not only did this woman cast her own shadow, but she came out glowing with a reflection that illuminates so many lives. So with that said, I would like to welcome to my program tonight Miss Rebecca Walker. Rebecca, are you there? <laughs> I am here, Dr. Young. Thank you so much. That was such a beautiful introduction. It's a pleasure to be conversating, talking. I tell you, there's so many places I want to go, and and I'm going to tell the audience tonight, we will not be going to break, uh, because there's just a plethora of information that I want to cover. And the first thing is, you know, you've written not just one, but you've got several books out there. I want to talk about a little bit about all of them, because I think all of your works bear investigation. The first one being Black, White, and Jewish, 
Um, when I read that, I was reading some of the statements that the critics made about that particular work. And when I looked at just a couple of the comments, the things that uh, just really touched me was when they referred to you meeting, uh, well, I, I'm not going to mention which publication said what, but I, I'll just say this. Um, one very significant uh, well, I'm going to read. One says, her book is an attempt to not only come to grips with her own identity, but to expose the pain and turmoil that come with the shifting back and forth. It is stunningly honest account, almost painfully self-revelatory. That one really tugged at me, but the other one was this. And let me just go right here. Yeah, It says, rarely does a writer convey the angst of a young biracial woman's search for self-identity in a society hell-bent on defining her, and they could have just stopped there, but it says defining her as she reduces readers with her sharp insights and beguiling poise. Walker pulls it off in this chronicle of her life. I want you to tell me, let's go back to your childhood, and let's go back, and would you please inform our audience, and some in Australia, some in Canada, the VI in the UK, tell them about your origin and tell them who your parents were. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so I was a, a movement child, which means I was born in the Civil Rights Movement in Jackson, Mississippi. Um, my father was a young, idealistic, um, powerfully motivated for justice, a Jewish law student, and my mother was a budding African-American novelist. Um, many people know her. Obviously, we've just discussed Alice Walker, and my father's name is Mel Leventhal, um, and he was, and he still is an incredible attorney and supporter of people who need support and visibility. He did a lot of desegregation cases in the South and argued in the Supreme Court on behalf of restoring um, utilities to black communities in the South. And um, it's, you know, just wonderful. So anyway, they fell in love in the midst of this incredible moment in our history and um, and had me. And as I write about in Black, White, and Jewish, the dream for me was that I would represent the future of America, a kind of post-racial reality where love conquered all. And unfortunately, due to a lot of circumstances, including the shift in the dialogue around race relations from integrationism to a more militant um, separation and segregation, um, my parents' marriage did not, um, could not hold. So they ended up divorcing. And then my life was spent then moving back and forth between different worlds that um, had fused to make me, but then ultimately retreated back into what was familiar. And so I had to recreate an identity that was not a movement child, that was not a post-racial utopic body, but, um, but, but managed to still incorporate that dream while negotiating the ways in which these different communities continue to project singular limiting identities onto my being. Um, so once they divorced, they moved, my mother moved to San Francisco and my father stayed in New York and I was about I was eight years old and I started to go back and forth and spent most of my life as a young person um, moving in that way and living in these different communities and 
feeling like I had to lie and adapt and contort and change myself in order to find acceptance in any, all of these worlds, and that was very difficult. Um, but the book, Black, White, and Jewish, is really about, you know, that struggle to figure out who I, who I am or who I was um, in the context of all of these different voices and all of these different realities trying to pin me down and needing desperately to claim a liberative space that was outside of all of these racial categories and definitions. And, and that book was really instrumental in my, I would say, my own psychic and, and psychological health because it was the first time I was able to put together all of my experiences in one place. You know, I've been so fragmented that in a way I, I, my very being was fragmented and the book became a symbolic representation of a kind of integration of myself. Uh, so that's a little bit about my background and a little bit about, about the book, though there's so much to talk about, I think, because it's not just a book about being a child of mixed heritage, but also, as you mentioned, um, I had to do quite a bit of class shifting. I went back and forth between working class communities and very wealthy communities and everything in between, and that was a big part of my um, um, experience, and, and also just being a child of divorce, so... Uh, it's a, it's a, hopefully for readers, it's a very rich um, look at what it, what it looks like to be really a child of America today, you know, one of so many who've gone through this kind of experience. You know, when I think about just the word miscegenation, um, and just for those of you that I have been blessed not to have to even know what that word means is when they have laws against um, interracial interfaith couples marrying and these things, some of these laws weren't even on the books. A lot of these laws were just imposed culturally by a whatever quote-unquote we could call a cultural norm. But as we live in a melting pot community globally, as the world has been flatlined because of the computer screen, as Thomas Friedman would articulate, the thing that I want to ask you about, and the thing that I, I and this show is really about helping um, a lot of our listeners are of mixed heritage and uh, they're dealing with classism issues. What would you say to the 13-year-old girl? Because this is something I was reading, and uh, please correct me because I, I really want to say this appropriately. You were at 13 endeavoring to make sense of a very complicated set of worlds. You were um, at that point, and I guess the term would be becoming aware of your sexual identity. You mm -hmm. were at that point going back and forth between an, a Southern African-American heritage and a Jewish heritage that is just rich in texture. And then mm -hmm. on, in addition to all of this stuff, you're trying to figure you out. You're trying to just, okay, I'm, I'm a human being. Who in the hell am I? Tell me what a day in the life was like for you at, during that season of your life. <laughs> well, you know, the days were all different because I was in so many different environments. So, um, you know, when I was in, you know, unfortunately, well, my parents did this custody arrangement where I was with them each two, two years each, and then I would switch. And within each two years, it turned out that they moved. And so anyway, I ended up going to a different school every year for several years. And so, you know, in fifth grade, I went to this very non-traditional hippie school in San Francisco. 
and we did Tai Chi every day, and we called our teachers by their first names, and it was this kind of fluid, you know, exactly what you think of San Francisco, you know, at that time to be like. And, and that was what it was. And then the next year I went to a, a school that was in the middle of the ghetto, you know, the middle of like one of the hard, hardest neighborhoods in San Francisco, Hunter's Point, um, where, you know, the girls threatened to beat me up every day after school because they said that I was, I was light-skinned and I thought I was better than everyone. And, you know, they were having their, they were working out, you know, their pain, um, and I was really terrified most of the time. Um, and there was, I didn't really have any allies. There was no language around being mixed race at that time. Everything was either you're black or you're white, or in San Francisco you were Samoan maybe, you were Latino maybe, um, but in that environment it was very polarized and I felt a lot of time feeling um, vulnerable and, and as if I wanted to connect to people that I felt I was related to on this cultural level but that didn't want to have me. And then the next year I went back to the Bronx where my father was living in Riverdale and um, I went to a school that was half Dominican and half Puerto Rican and because the two were always fighting, these two communities, and the Puerto Ricans were always winning, I decided that I was just going to lie and say I was Puerto Rican. And that's why, you know, I sort of morphed into this young Puerto Rican woman and um, found sort of home in, in, amongst these, these young sisters who, were, um, who taught me a lot about bravado and a lot about projecting strength and um, holding my own in very scary situations. Uh, and then, let's see, in then eighth grade, I went to a very sort of wealthy, private, actually it wasn't private, but it was a very sort of upper class, um, almost all white school in Westchester. And there I felt very much like um, an outsider from a different point of view. You know, all the girls um, had pools and maids and um, they were mostly Jewish and preparing for their bar and bat mitzvahs celebrations and I was not that and I, I was trying to figure out how I could connect my Bronx world with their world. I mean, you know, so every year was, was different and then ninth grade I was back in San Francisco at a big public high school and I started going out with a big football job and I became a cheerleader <laughs> and then finally I found a home in a very small private school um, that was very mixed in hate uh, Ashbury district and and that was where I really started to focus on the life of my mind and my intellect. And I found teachers who supported me and guided me and, um, and really saved my life in a lot of ways and helped me to, to see that it was my, my creative drive and my intellectual power and my, my joy for life and um, connecting to, to people who could be generous and good to me that was going to save me. And, and it did. And so the day in the life of, of Rebecca was different every day, but I think until I found that base later on, it was mostly about, um, there's just a lot of fear, a lot of alienation, a lot of not knowing a lot of uncertainty, um, awkwardness. And um, it's funny, sometimes, you know, that book came out a while ago. It was my first memoir. And sometimes when I read from it, I, I cry reading some of those passages because 
I can't believe that I was in that kind of, I had that, I was enduring that kind of suffering. And one of the great blessings of being able to write that book and then talk about it for so long and have so many people connect to it is that I, I really healed a huge part of myself that was able to, to move on. Um, but a day in the life, and also you mentioned sexuality, so I want to just in, in, include that because I think it is really important, especially for a lot of mixed-race young women out there. Um, one of the ways that I navigated feeling displaced and feeling alone was to rely on, on some level on my sexuality. That was a space where I felt like it didn't matter what color I was. You know, there was this men were, young men, boys were attracted to me, and there was something about that that was inherently affirming and empowering um, for me. And I, I really, I needed that, but it, it also was a double-edged sword, obviously, because I was in many ways too young to negotiate those relationships in, a, in an ultimately a healthy way. Um, but I did get a lot from that space, the space of growing sexuality and feeling accepted and loved um, no matter what my color and my, my sort of racial narrative was. You know, something that makes me want to ask you about uh, when I was doing my homework, I, and a great deal of this program is about edifying and education and enlightening the masses. We have a very significant global audience. Um, of that audience, we have a lot of uh, young women, some single moms, and they're probably listening to this show. And I know that uh, all over the globe now you're being you're speaking to uh, what will eventually probably be millions of people that will hear this archive. I want to ask a question. When you find yourself this 14-year-old girl, you are basically now just sniffing life on your own. And when you're not sniffing, you're downwind of the echoes that of the, of the stench of life as well as the aromatic of life that other people have had flow in your direction. So you mm-hmm. find yourself pregnant. You mm-hmm. find yourself home with money, fast food diet, and then from looking at you, you are, you've always been, even as a baby, you were very pretty. So I could imagine here's this little tenderoni, this little pretty curly-haired girl. Mm-hmm. And you find yourself in this quagmire with all this cognitive dissonance going on with you. What helped you make it through the day beyond sex? What, what was it that you found in terms of connecting with your inner guide or with your with forces that others don't see, what mm. helped make it through the night? Well, I would say absolutely books. <laughs> I think every writer will say that. Um, you know, I read voraciously, and I was I was privileged to have um, not just one writer and reader in my in my family, my mother, but but two. My father was a big reader and writes plays to this day. And so books were always a huge part of my my life, my environment. I could go at any moment to the bookshelf and pull something out that was, you know, fascinating and, and empowering and a world I could get lost in. So books were, were amazing, everything from Judy Bloom when I was in the third grade to Angela Davis's autobiography when I was in the eighth grade. Um, to try to find my way through Faulkner uh, when I was, I don't know, too young to try or, um, 
uh, I was reading, oh my God, I was reading Franz Fanon in ninth grade. I, was, I mean, I was just an avid reader, so that was very important. But also I would say that um, beauty of all kinds has been very important to me, whether it's uh, nature or um, art or... Um, I'm very sensitive to to my environment, and I draw a lot of sustenance from... And aesthetics, you know, I love, I love fashion. I love a beautiful line. I love color. I love texture. You know, I'm looking at my face right now, and I'm amazed. You know, I have gorgeous African wax print cushions in front of me, and some mud cloth, and then an Indian step stool. You know, with this incredible embroidery and Suzani pillows from Turkey, and. I've just always been inspired and supported by the creativity of other people and other cultures and what all of that brought together um, and reflecting my own aesthetic gives me, you know, creating a world. So beauty, art, um, and my own own sense of... um, you know, I always felt loved by my parents, which was wonderful. And my father always said to me, you know, be yourself. And my mother always used to say, let your light shine. This little light of mine, let your light shine. And those two, two things were very important, you know. No matter what was going on, I always felt I had value. I always felt that I had something to say and that it was worthwhile, um, and watching my parents as social activists in the world actually make massive change in the world was very inspiring. No matter what was going on between us, they were incredible role models for speaking truth to power. And so I kind of I had all of that in my DNA. You know, I had it in my in my cultural psychological reserve, and that kept me moving forward no matter what was going on. You know. Um, also, I started to travel very young. I was able to travel. My mother supported me, um, you know, traveling in Mexico and traveling to Bali and traveling just out of the country so that I could taste what it felt like to be a woman of the world as opposed to, um, you know, a woman just narrowly confined in one world, you know. Yeah, so all of those things were very helpful, Yeah. Yeah, something that uh, just comes to mind uh, when, as I listen to you talk, um, if you, if any of us could gather together all the archaeal sages that have walked this planet from Jesus to Buddha to even Gandhi, Martin Luther King, all of those people would say that uh, it was in their darkest hour, it was in the state of abandonment, abandonment, it was in their greatest sense of contradiction was birthed that which was housed within them. Um, I look at you, and I'm looking at you now between the ages of, let's say, 13 to about 18 years old, and you have an opportunity. Not only here's your mother, here's the color purple being birthed, here's all of this stuff going on, Audrey Lorde, but I also you make me think of what it must have been like to be in Seneca Falls with Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and my mother was the first black female appointed state official in Texas. Um, you know, I, I grew up seeing uh, Barbara Jordan and Shirley Chisholm and, and women like that. So when I look at you, uh, though 
you said, uh, or at least it was interpreted. I'm not going to say you said it because we know how the press is with that kind of crap, but it was interpreted that you were uh, not exactly all that fond of radical feminism. But when I look at you, I see what I would want my daughters to imitate in terms of being a feminist, which I happen to be not a radical feminist, obviously. I love women in high heels, and I think women are God's flowers. But at the same token, there's a strength that you emit, and there is a, a, I guess, a spirit of not being a survivor, but I'm going to use a really funny word, a liver, someone that is living life, and as you take this next step, you go start finding yourself, and then you realize, you know what, I think I want to not see femininity as something that we're at war with, but something we should embrace. And within you embracing that, you take on a new role, and, and I guess that's where I want to go into talking about your other works and, and your other books. So you say which book you want to talk about first, and I'm cool with it. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, really. But there's a part of you that now you're very receptive to being a, uh, being a mom and very receptive to taking femininity to a whole new level in terms of how you present it and how you embrace it. Tell me what happened when you had that paradigm shift. Hmm. Well, um, my very first book was called To Be Real, Telling the Truth and Changing the Face of Feminism, which was a collection of writings by young women and men who were struggling to redefine feminism for a new generation. So from, from you know, when I was in college, what I found was that so many people were were afraid of the word feminism and feminist, and um, and while older women were dismissing them and calling them naive, I was thinking to myself, well, let's try to hear what they have to say and what my generation has to offer to this conversation. And what they had to offer was that they felt that labels were restrictive, that having a totalizing feminist identity um, was limiting for them, and that they wanted to create their own models of femininity that weren't about um, replicating a male model or about resisting or rejecting masculinity, but trying to find some way to be more interdependent with men um, and, and have it be a, a, you know, a partnership of these two energies of femininity and masculinity that would, that would ultimately create a very powerful force of, of not just procreation of human beings, but procreation of ideas and um, and forward momentum for the species. So I wanted to, so that was the beginning of, of my work with feminism. And then I wrote a book, um, and so then I wrote a book called What Makes a Man. I did a collection called What Makes a Man because I felt that feminism had left out uh, the discussion of masculinity in many ways and that men were robbed of having a men's movement and were, were limited by these notions of masculinity that, that the culture had yet to grapple with. So, you know, stoicism, workaholism, um, having to be a provider or go to war, I mean, all of these kind of identities um, were very limiting for men, and, and I felt like men needed space to have an emotional range and to be honest about what it meant to be forced into masculinity. Um, so that was that book. And that was a very interesting book because I did a big, uh, I, I did a study, a personal study, and I talked to 200 men, 
And it turns out that 100, I think 189 of them had been in some way either physically or verbally assaulted into, quote-unquote, becoming a man. So that every time they tried to stop, step out of the man box, whether they were crying, whether they wanted to be an artist, whether they wanted to be gay, whether they, you know, whatever it was, they were either um, physically abused or verbally abused. And so I started to think about this war being waged against boys and how that needed to be interwoven into feminist discourse. And that happened when I was um, raising the son of my then partner and, and he came home from school one day and said that if he wasn't an athlete and he wasn't um, dominant in these very violent video games that we didn't let him play, that he had no social currency in school. And that's what made me think about what was happening to boys. Um, and then I wrote a book called Baby Love, my second memoir, uh, a few years ago. And that was a whole book about how I had been raised to think as a feminist that having a child was not an empowering choice, but that, in fact, I had been longing to have children my whole life and putting it off and putting it off because I thought I had to go be Secretary of State <laughs> instead of being a mom. And it was about, that book was about becoming pregnant and deciding to be a mother and, and trying to um, really reframe the discussion of motherhood from one of losing one's identity to expanding one's identity and coming to find that becoming a mother was one of the most empowering experiences in my life. And... Um, and, and, and demanding that feminism kind of catch up with that. And I mean, you know, now we've been talking about that for a few years, but when that book came out, that was a discussion that was not being had um, uh, really at all. So that was Baby Love, Choosing Motherhood After a Lifetime of Ambivalence. And, and yes, I was raised in a very, um, you know, I grew up at Ms. Magazine, like my godmother's Gloria Steinem. So I grew up with a very intense, feminist um, mandate in a way. And so writing these books and, and challenging feminism was um, was, it was a, a scary thing to do. But, but yes, as you said, I mean, it was what I was taught to do by feminism. So I'm, I'm a byproduct of feminism and I'm, I'm very grateful to be that. I'm, I'm who I am because I was given this tremendous model for being an independent thinker, um, having tremendous uh, a sense of being able to speak my truth. Um, and, and it just happened that that was my truth. My truth was we need to expand this definition, we need to expand this movement so that more women, more men, more people across the spectrum can be invested in these ideas of, of equality of all kinds. Um, so, so, yeah, that, that was my my journey with feminism. And then, and actually, yeah. that, that leads... Well, go ahead. <laughs> no, no, I've got to ask you a question because I think this is a, a, a good moment to enlighten a lot of people. Um, there was an incident, and I don't know if you've heard about it, um, but if you look up Pond Girl or PV Pond Girl, there was a young lady at a homecoming celebration at a historically black university. I won't mention the university's name out of respect. But they, the girl was in a pond, 
And, you know, there's this new thing called twerking. So for those of you that are like me that didn't have a clue what in the hell that was, that is a dance where you are, uh, where you are let's just say, shaking what your mama gave you and uh, doing it in such a way that it's quite uh, erotic and arousing and probably very inappropriate because if I saw my daughters and if you're listening and I ever catch any of you doing it, your father is going to strangle you. That's a side note. <laughs> But the uh, thing that I, I do want to comment on is, um, and really hear your commentary because you are a thought leader, and you, and and again, I'm I'm just going to say I think that if there is a model for women, you would definitely be exemplary. What do you have to say about the things? Not that the music industry is doing or television is doing. I'm not even going to go there because we'll never solve that issue except with uh, common sense and America's running short on that these days. But what do you think is the problem, Rebecca, that our women, and I'm speaking women of color, I'm not even just going to say African-American women because I think more women of color or demified, or uh, uh, just becoming objects of desire, even on their own without men doing it, without the machine of the media and Hollywood doing it. What in the hell is wrong with us? Oh, gosh. Well, (laughs) I mean, I think, you know, it reminds me actually of of what I was doing as a young woman, finding affirmation through my sexuality when I was not being affirmed in any other way. And I think that our culture tends to, um, you know, see, you know, choose not to look at the intellectual power, the spiritual power, the psychological endurance, um, the incredible resilience of women of color, and and instead um, gives us our props, our feedback, our um, reflection as, as sexual objects. And so, you know, when left with very little, I think we gravitate toward that because we can get some affirmation and we do need affirmation. I think all human beings need affirmation. They need to feel as if, as if they're contributing something, as if they're worth something. And so when the culture's not giving you a lot of options to be recognized, you, you go for what for what you can control. And so, you know, I think, I think a lot of women are, um, are desperate for that kind of affirmation and have contorted themselves and are, are self-objectifying in a way that is uh, a result of not being able to get the other kinds of recognition that they so deserve. Now, that being said, I also believe in the power of of women's sexuality. I believe in the power of adornment, um, of mating rituals, of, you know, ways of, of being that have been in existence in humanity for thousands of years. So I think there's some, some interesting coming together of something that is probably ancient and appropriate in terms of um, self-presentation and a, a kind of gravi- gravitation towards the erotic and what is sensual and, and all of that, um, but that that is kind of mixed in with this degradation of um, a kind of pornography, a pornographizing, if you will, a pornification um, of this very um, potentially beautiful and liberative um, ritual. So, 
you know, I think that, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, I think it's changing slowly. Um, but I think also if you look at it across the class spectrum, you know, you see obviously women of color who are considered disposable, you know, um, for, you know, in so many ways uh, by the culture and have been since slavery. And, what do you mean by that? What do you mean when you say disposable? Because I find, I, believe it or not, we are definitely on track with each other right about now, but I would like for you to really expand on that when you say these women are being found disposable and or and or are they making themselves disposable or receptive to being disposable? Comment on that for me. Well, you know, I was just looking at the, um, there's a, a group called Black Girls Code, and it's a, um, an organization that's helping young black women to just to learn how to code in, in computers and, and really try to figure out a pipeline for black women to get into the tech world. And it made me think about how few resources like that are available for specifically for women of color and specifically for girls of color in um, in, in communities where that kind of access is not happening. And so when I say disposable, I mean that, um, you know, the, the, the dominant culture or the ruling class elite or the, 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 the thought leaders of, of, of America and the world are not understanding the, the incredible contribution that young black girls and black women and, and all, women of all colors can have, you know, in this contemporary new age. And, and they're writing them off and not giving them the tools they need to really shine um, and are content with, um, you know, substandard schooling, um, uh, you know, criminalizing behavior and, and putting them into the prison industrial complex in incredibly, you know, inhumane numbers um, without really thinking about, you know, these individuals have something that if we can cultivate, you know, that can, that can change the world. Um, so that's what I mean about disposable. In terms of are we doing it to ourselves, you know, I, it's, it's hard to, you know, you know, show me a young woman who's had the kinds of options and support that I think she, that I think she needs in order to make good decisions for her future, um, who makes bad ones. I mean, I, you know, I think it takes a lot of resources to raise one human being. And when, when even just a few of those aren't there, or even just one, um, it's hard to stay on track. It's hard to find your way. And again, you fall back on creating a self, making choices that in the moment seem to get you what you want, but you don't have somebody there mentoring you for the long term. You don't have the power and access to really tool an identity and an intellect and a, a system that can sustain you. So, you know, I don't want to make it, you know, I think every woman has agency. So I think we're always making choices and we can always make better choices. But, and we're not, you know, just victims. We are engaged in a process. Um, but, you know, our culture is not doing enough. It's not doing enough for us. It's not doing enough for so many, you know, white, black, Puerto Rican, you know, rich, poor. You know, I mean, 
we have a lot of work to do. Um, and we're at a critical moment where we need innovation, we need new minds, we need new ideas, and we need to be looking for them wherever we can find them um, to get us out of this, this mess and to, and to kind of push us forward. So, you know, I'd like to see that kind of, that kind of question, you know, how can we cultivate this generation? What tools do they need? Um, what options can we give them so that they don't have to fall back on these old tropes um, as opposed to kind of blaming or wondering, you know, um, if they're doing it to themselves. I want to know, what can we do? Like, that's why I love this Black Girls, co- black girls Code, Black Girls Who Code. Um, you, know, I, I, you know, those are the projects I want to see. And I think those will provide more options. But as long as Silicon Valley is, you know, less than 1% of color, um, as long as the financial industry, they're less than 3% of color, whatever it is, um, and those skills are not being taught in our communities, you know, it's not going to happen. And, um, and, the, and the culture as a whole is going to miss out on a lot of genius, you know, because when you look at a lot of the innovation in our culture and around the world, it's come directly out of communities of color. It's come straight out of Africa. It's come straight out of the African-American community here. Um, it's come straight out of mixed, hybrid, you know, worlds that uh, because they're this incredible melange come up with, you know, new ideas because they have to, because they, they are from a new place, you know. So long answer to that. No, I think beautiful answer to that, and it's a perfect segue. So uh, this is from both, I guess, Rebecca and myself, America. Spend more time teaching and less time twerking. Anyway, let's uh, get – yeah, I'm silly for, for me. Let's get into this new book a day. It's a love story. Uh, it's considered um, a very uh, powerful novel about the power of love and limitations of the human heart. I'm not going to give away the storyline, but I'm going to say it's set in a beautiful setting, very romantic, and like most things that end up looking so beautiful on the outside, when it comes time to pay the price, the the price is very much so high. Tell me, what led you or inspired you to create your latest work? Hmm. Well, this is my first novel, so it's fiction, but it's, it's autobiographical fiction, so it's based on a real experience that I had. Um, falling in love with a um, devout Muslim man in, uh, on a very small, beautiful island off the coast of Kenya and accepting his marriage proposal and um, getting caught in the middle of a civil war and um, on and on like that. And I think, what, you know, I've been writing the book a long time and I think what inspired it the most was this sense of having been given this tremendous gift of this love. You know, this, this person loved me in such a tender, beautiful way. And his family loved me, even though there was this incredible cultural chasm in such a complete way. And his community took me in. And, um, and I wanted to sort of give something back. I want, it was a, a very powerful relationship for me. It was a beautiful, luscious, experiential relationship. Um, and it also taught me my own limitations as a human being. And I wanted to honor that moment. I wanted to um, 
to really write write him a love letter of sorts, a, a letter of gratitude, and also to give my readers um, an opportunity to look back on all of the great loves of their lives and to really um, own them and honor them and um, you know and hopefully reflect on them in a new way that they could find empowering in the now, you know, no matter what happened, that somehow the love can still endure, you know, even though, as I keep saying, even though love may not conquer all, in some ways love, when it's real, can't be defeated. It's not defeated by distance. It's not defeated um, by circumstance. And, and that's its power. And, um, and, and I felt like this was a good time to write about all of that especially between a, a young American woman and a young Islamic man, because we need to be sort of looking at those relationships in a more complex way in the midst of all this very intense sort of polarizing propaganda. And, um, you know, I, I wanted to, to shed a light, to, sh- to show the possibility of that kind of coming together. That is and amazing. Wanted- uh-huh. And I wanted to do it in a beautiful way. I wanted to transport people to another world, you know. Uh, I think writing fiction, it was very liberative for me. I got to to create things and um, use a different voice than I've ever used before, a more lyrical voice. I think I felt, you know, with the memoirs and looking at my childhood, that I'm kind of done with that part of my life. And as an artist, it was a moment of maturity of being able to move into a different medium, a different form, um, and and really create this this hopefully this beautiful bridge uh, into another land that many people have not experienced. Now, a question for you: If there was a couple of things that you would want to see your reader take away from this newest work? Because I just me being uh, selfish and an avid learner, mm-hmm. all of your works, in my opinion, provide an evolution toward the next thing that you've done. It, um, it's epistemological in terms of the fact that I think your works are like constructs built on top of another construct. But with mm-hmm. this new book, what can men and women get out of it that will resonate at a very deep subconscious level. Mm, deep, deep, deep. <laughs> I think I love that you that you see my body of work in that way. Just just before I get to that, because it, I do work in that way. I, you know, I'm I'm saying things in each work about identity and about place and about how we can evolve as human beings. I'm trying to. I'm trying to reflect that. And so um, this it's a good question about this book. You know, where does that fit, where does this fit into that narrative and that journey? Um, you know, when when you have a new book, it's it's uh, it's hard for this one in particular. It's been hard to kind of name a cultural construct that I'm sort of positing in in the same way that I have with the memoirs. But I think this book is really about um, it's about it's about love. It's about memory. It's about um, it's about 
you know, I think my other work has been so much about infinite possibility of human beings that we can become anything. We can be, we can go anywhere. We, if we allow ourselves this kind of freedom. And this book is about that, yes, and the power of love to to create that circumstance. But it's also about recognizing that we do have limitations, and and really questioning what those limitations are, and honoring some of those limitations, and realizing we, we you know. We do have homes that we come from, and sometimes we want to own that home. We don't want to let go of everything. Um, and, and what does that mean? What are the implications of that? Um, you know, many people have said, and I don't want to give it away, but many people, have, many people long for these two people to be together forever. And, um, and I'm hoping that that leads them to question and to think about the ways in which we hold ourselves back, even in the face of a great love, and to think about how maybe we shouldn't do that, and, 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 and how open can we be. Um, but, you know, but, but I mean, you know, it's a lot, it's a lot, there's a lot going on in this book, you know. She's traveling with a white woman, um, and she's sort of claimed by the subcolor community, and the white woman is pushed away and pushed aside. And there's a lot being said about um, being an insider and being an outsider, and and what bonds are meaningful. And I, I don't know. I mean, who knows? You know, I've I've always found that that my readers tell me so much more about my work on the other side of it, and what by telling me what they got out of it. But I think fundamentally. Um, love is powerful, love is transportive, love is everything, and, um, and we have to consider what we'll do for love. Um, wow. Yeah. yeah. That's really deep. So where, what is next on the horizon for you? Where are you going to be? Or have you got some tour stuff lined up, some speaking stuff, or some uh, television appearances? Where can people check you out and get another taste? <laughs> well, I've got a whole tour coming up. We're going to be on the West Coast, this first leg. So I'll be in uh, Seattle at Elliott Bay Books on, I think, the 18th. And then I'll be at uh, Booksmith and City Arts and Lectures in San Francisco, I think, on the 19th. And then I'll be speaking at Facebook on the 20th. Then I'll be at Cal Poly during a university talk. I do a lot of, um, you know, class visits and, and lecture series at universities, so that will be one on, I think, the 22nd. Then I'll be at Esalon Books, one of my favorite independent black bookstores in L.A. on the 20. But, you know, that, that'll be on the 22nd, and the other one will be on the 21st, Cal Poly. So that'll be the first leg of the tour. And then um, we'll be going to the East Coast, probably in December, um, and those dates haven't been set yet, and then there's a whole bunch of stuff coming next next year. Uh, I'll be at Harvard in March. I'll be at the university, uh, I mean, at, uh, at a Vermont Literary Festival at the end of January. I'll be at the Schomburg in conversation, I think, with Sadie Smith um, at the end of January in New York. Um, but right now I'm writing the screenplay for this book, for the new for, for the new novel, and it looks like it's going to be 
a movie. I'm blessed to be producing it with um, uh, Bruce Cohen Productions, and uh, he just they just produced Silver Linings Playbook and many other really amazing films, and so I'm really excited to be producing it with my my sister, who's their director of development, and Bruce Cohen himself is an old dear friend, and we all three love the book, and I'm very excited. So I'm writing treatments and all of that. I'm also developing a few television projects um, that are very exciting. Black, White, and Jewish is an option to become a, uh, a network sitcom, believe it or not. So we're working on that. <laughs> Blackpool, which is one of my favorites, um, it was out last year. I'm developing with Mara Brock Akil, who obviously is the genius writer and um, a woman I love behind the game, and she also created Girlfriends, and uh, she has a new show now, Being Mary Jane on BET. She's one of my favorite creative forces. And so we're working together on this Black Cool docuseries that will look at the different elements of cool within black culture. Uh, so there's a lot on the horizon. And, um, and it's miraculous that right now I'm doing it all from Maui, <laughs> which is where I've been living for several years. But it looks like L.A. Is, is the next step because I'm really interested in film and television, and there's a lot of uh, exciting potential there. Well, I wish I had oh, known that. Oh, no, jeez, that could write on the island I'm also working on a new novel. But anyway, go ahead. What were you going to say? Uh, I'm just I'm amazed. I was saying that as much as I was in Kona, Hawaii, you were just a few hours, just an hour away. But something I, I just want to say is uh, I know with a schedule like that, you taking time out to spend an hour with us this evening is definitely a beautiful thing. Um, you know, while you're doing all these projects, don't forget to leave out your expert on emotional intelligence and relationships. Not being silly, but but um, it, it was really wonderful having you here. And I want to just let you know that this door is open, and you are always welcome to walk through it. Oh, darling, thank you so much. That means so much to me. I can't tell you, uh, and I'm so glad you brought in the emotional intelligence and the importance of family and. You know, I'm going right now to pick up my son, and I, you know, he is the joy of my life. And um, I do so much of what I do for him, and I have learned so much about how I can't do other things because I want to give what I have to him. Um, and also, you know, to find kindred spirits who are open and listening and loving uh, and making space for my voice like you are means the world to me. I am a... Um, the fact that I can survive as an artist in this time is is due to people like you who are open enough to to hear me and support me and take and take various risks and um, in doing so. So thank you. I really appreciate well, you and your work. Well, I can tell you this was not a risk. It was definitely an investment. And I think Kenzie has probably one of the coolest moms on the face of the planet. Uh, we look so forward to uh, having you back, and thank you uh, for spending some time with us this evening. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Rebecca Walker. And I want to definitely tell you, if you have not done anything uh, in terms of sharpening the axe mentally, the, you know, that gray matter between your ears, you might want to put a few more wrinkles on your brain by going to her website 
and checking her out. This woman is nothing but uh, phenomenal. As you can hear, that uh, there has been so much work that she's doing. Her website is www. Yes, I was country enough to say www. dot Rebecca R E B E C C A Walker W A A L K E R. dot com. Check her out. Buy the books and don't borrow and loan your books, folks. Buy her books. Okay, everybody, buy your own copy. Uh, she's got a plethora of wonderful content out there. Now, as I say with all my programs, you know, there are times in our lives that we want to have a pity party. We want to look at what mother and father didn't do. We want to let some idiot beat us up because we have made mistakes. Well, let me tell you something. First of all, how do you know it was really your mom and it wasn't God preparing you for your life? The things that we look at as being someone else's buffoonery is really God's creativity, and you are being prepared for something much greater than yourself. But as with any seed, that which is contained within cannot come out until first you put it alone in a very dark place. You bury it and you put a lot of fertilizer. We know what that word is. And, uh, and Julia, I'm not going to say the word. It starts with an S and ends with a T and has four letters. But when you're covered up with a lot of that kind of stuff, you realize then that that pressure and that uh, isolation can do one or two things. It can suffocate you, or it can liberate you. I suggest you let it be number. B, as that lady said, went to my father's church. Now, this coming Wednesday at noon, lunchtime love with Dr. Devon Young. We've got a real treat coming up for you, and no, I'm not going to tell you what it is. I want to send a special Julia. You can get the music queued up. We'll be going off in just shortly. So, I want to just leave you with a couple of thoughts. One, you are here for a reason. Uh, take life's lemons and make lemon parfaits, lemon pie. Don't just make lemonade. Be fruitful and multiply. One thing is certain. You can cut an apple open, and you can see how many seeds are in the apple. But can you look at a seed and tell me any, how many apples are in that seed? Just something to think about. With that said, if you can't love you, who else will? Nobody can do it better than you. You've been listening to Conversations with Dr. D. Yvonne Young. Have an awesome week. Love you, America. Good night.
With Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. <laughs> 